Hello and welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the Career and Culture podcast. And if you are a forward-thinking, people-centric leader, then you're absolutely in the right place. Through a combination of interview-based episodes as well as solo episodes, I share practical tips on creating happier working environments. As you rise up, women and people of color and really anyone in an organization or an environment that is underrepresented continues to face more obstacles. And so not only facing obstacles to get to that role, but once you're in that role, the amount of, of bias or unequal treatment, and sometimes it's very subtle, but it doesn't matter, it's very powerful and it adds up and it weighs you down. Um, and, and so being a woman in that kind of environment and, and knowing other women in that environment, the amount of sort of daily, and you know, some people call them microaggressions, unconscious bias, all of these daily little things add up and, and it's really, really piling up when you, the higher you go. And so I see a lot of that and, and that's what I was seeing. Whether you are looking to strategically and more proactively manage your career or create a more positive work culture in your organization, this is definitely the podcast for you. If you are a woman or an ally, then today's podcast episode is for you. Welcome back to the Happier at Work podcast. And my guest today is Melina Cordero. We talk all things, the challenges that women face at work, the unique challenges that they have, and also what to do about it. How do we progress in our careers when we face these challenges? And that includes challenging the environment that we find ourselves in. So so what are some of the steps that organizations and leaders can take to create better working environments for women? I know you're really going to love today's podcast episode. I would love to hear from you. What do you think? Let me know. Do connect with me and you'll find all of my links at happieratwork.ie. And don't forget to let me know how you know me from. Melina, welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm so delighted to have you as my guest. I know we met a couple of months ago and we talked about you coming on as a guest on the Happier at Work podcast. So I'm delighted. The day has finally arrived. <laughs> it seems so far in the future when we talked about it, but the day is finally right and we're catching up today. Really, really looking forward to it. Do you want to let listeners know a little bit about you, your background and how you got into doing what you're doing? Sure, absolutely. And I'm um, what a great way to kick off 2024, I have to say, talking about being happy at work or happier at work, <laughs> which we could all use, I think. Uh, so I started off, I had a career uh, that sort of skyrocketed without me intending for it to in commercial real estate. And so I spent um, just over 10 years in various environments, kind of climbing up the ladder uh, in a small tech firm and then a massive commercial real estate firm, uh, leading teams and being one of the only women uh, being one of the youngest, usually the youngest in the room or on the Zoom, being the only Hispanic in the room a lot of times. And through that experience, really, the the higher I climbed, uh, the more unhappiness I saw and, and felt, really, in how things worked or didn't work. And it was really during the pandemic when it really hit me how unhappy people seemed to be. <laughs> and also 
in particular, how that unhappiness at work was impacting women and people of color, in my view, much more than than my my white male colleagues. And that really stuck with me and grew into a passion that I wanted to address. <laughs> so I guess you could say that my inspiration was unhappiness at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same as mine. <laughs> um, right. And and it's a powerful one. And what what I ended up doing with that interest is just diving into the research. I am a big data nerd. I wanted mm. to understand was what I observing and um and experiencing and seeing a trend. Was there data behind it? Is this a thing? Am I making this up? Am I projecting, right? <laughs> all the questions. And I dove into all the research, all the studies, and it turns out that yes, this is a thing. And this is a thing that's growing. Mm. And this is a thing that is not only growing and a people issue, right? So we can all see it in our friend groups and our families. A lot of people are unhappy or unsatisfied or generally just not totally fulfilled with work, but also that that is affecting organizations. Yeah. It's affecting companies' ability to perform, produce, create, innovate, all the things. And all of this realization, all this research really just set off a light bulb for me. And I said, I, I want to go figure this out. I want to go help I want people to be happier in life. And I think, you know, if you look at the stats, the percentage of our lives we spent at work is mm. massive. Yeah. And so for me, that mission to see so many more people happy, really, we can't ignore the workplace. And so that was one mission. And paired with that, I want to help organizations address this because I think there are lots of structural issues mm. um, at play here, preventing happiness at work. So... In April of 2021, I handed in my resignation to lots of shock and awe because why would you leave such a, an amazing career? Why would you step off a ladder you're climbing so quickly on? And I said, I really care about this thing. And I think making other people happy will make me happy. And and so that's what I did. So I, that was my mission. That is mm -hmm. my mission. And now what I do two, three years later is I work with organizations to help them address what I see as the, as the core issues in culture and operations and strategy that prevents people from being happy and in so doing prevents companies and organizations from really reaching their full potential. So mm -hmm. the company that I founded is called P20 and that stands for the post-2020 workplace because I think for so many of us, the world changed really fundamentally in yeah. 2020. It did, yeah. Our lives, the world, and our workplaces, in my opinion, and I think most people agree, were really ill-equipped and have been ill-equipped and 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 under-resourced to address these new challenges. Um, for me, a lot of that relates to leadership. A lot of that relates to what we call in the States DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it relates to how are we running our teams and our businesses and each other? How are we managing our people um, in a way that makes sure people feel included, happy, and fulfilled? Mm -hmm. And so for me, to answer your question about what is happiness at work, a big part of that is inclusion. You know, do we feel valued? Do we feel included? 
Uh, and do we have diversity around us that inspires and innovates? So for me, that's been a huge component of happiness at work. And it's been a huge missing piece in our workplaces and organizations that has led to a lot of unhappiness mm. at work. Yeah, I'd love to kind of drill into a couple of things and pick up on a couple of things that you've mentioned, Melina. So the first one is, I suppose, before you read all of the data, and by the way, I'm a total research and data nerd as well. That's my entire background for almost 20 years. I worked in market research, so I'm a total data geek as well. Um, But I'd love to know before you went in and read all of that, you were saying you were kind of looking around going, the higher you got, the more unhappiness that you saw. Why do you think that is? Like, what was your kind of instinct at that time before doing the research? It's a really great question. You know, I think at least in the environment where I was in corporate America, however, I I will preface that by saying I don't think there are as many differences between corporate America, nonprofit America, um, public America, as oftentimes we assume or think, yeah. I, you know, working with working across all types of organizations, I see very similar patterns across yes. the board. Um, <laughs> so what what I seeing is a culture that <clears throat> very much focuses on on grind culture, right? So uh, do more with less resources, and that's something that we're seeing across the board. And so there is a just a workload question. That is just untenable. That is a big part of it. The other thing I see statistically, and I lived it, I saw it, is as you rise up, women and people of color and really anyone in an organization or an environment that is underrepresented continues to face more obstacles. And so not only facing obstacles to get to that role, but once you're in that role, the amount of of bias or unequal treatment and sometimes it's very subtle but it doesn't matter it's very powerful and it adds up and it weighs you down um and and so being a woman in that kind of environment and and knowing other women in that environment the amount of sort of daily and you know some people call them microaggressions unconscious bias all of these daily little things add up and and it's really really piling up when you, the higher you go. And so I see a lot of that. And, and that's what I was seeing. And, you know, one anecdote I always talk about, which may seem silly, but it it was very telling to me, was during the pandemic when everything went on Zoom. I would be on these Zoom calls with colleagues, clients, you know, a mix. And I noticed that all of the men were sort of in t-shirts and baseball caps and hadn't shaved for three days, you know. Okay, it was a pandemic. But all the females on the call were, you know, makeup, hair done, dressed professionally. And that really struck me um, because I thought about why is this? And it's because mm-hmm. we we felt we had to and we did have to. Because what I found out later through the research is you know, women and men, and, you know, we're just going to generalize here and talk about two genders. So there's, there's a whole range um, of gender identities that also face challenges, right? Um, We are judged differently. We are held to different expectations. Um, It's fascinating. There was just an article published this morning in the Wall Street Journal about discrimination that, that women in particular, that everybody faces, but women face even more around weight. So our appearances 
you know, we're judged very differently. And so the men could show up in t-shirts and unshaven and, and baseball caps and not be judged as unprofessional or incompetent. Yeah. But as women to show up in the same state, we would not be judged as leniently. We would immediately be seen as unprofessional, less competent, maybe yeah. a little messy. And by the way, we would see each other that way. It's yeah, not just yeah, men yeah. seeing women that way. This mm. is an unconscious bias that that we all experience. And so then yeah. if you take that to the next step, well, it means that, okay, well, women then have to spend an extra half hour, hour every morning, and then they have to spend an extra, and then they have to. And so if you think about all the implications of that, mm. you know, that's an hour a guy gets to use checking emails and responding to clients. We're doing something right. else, a bit more fun. And we're having to, you know, put some paint on our faces so people take us seriously. Yeah. So <laughs> so that is an anecdote for me that during the pandemic, and again, it sounds silly, but it really triggered something in me of, wait a minute, something's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And when you went on to do the research then and kind of dive into that and realize that actually this is not just me, there's data to back this up, this is a real thing what were the kind of what were the key findings from from that research that you did yeah and it's a lot of it then there's a lot and there continues to be a lot um there are a couple great studies that i'll cite and all came out in the past year or two in terms of behaviors for example mm. male professionals who speak a certain way especially when it comes to things like authority or assertiveness and they say we're going to do this and we're going to do it by Tuesday and let's go team. When a man says that, it's taken as credible, authoritative, assertive, generally positive. What they found is, is when a woman communicates the exact same thing, using the exact same words in the exact same tone, it's perceived as hostile. It's perceived as unfriendly. It's perceived as, you know, insert all number of, of bad terms here. And that's something that has been very publicly discussed. We've seen it in politics. Uh, we see it in organizations. Mm. The range of emotions a woman is allowed to show in the workplace versus a man. Now, I worked with salesmen. I worked with, with real estate brokers. And there were many times where I saw men, quote unquote, losing their cool. Yeah. Shouting, <laughs> cursing, getting angry, yeah. um, upset about a deal. I thought you were going to use and a different word there, Melina, but that's fine. It's all good. I have I all sorts we of know words what you I mean. can use. <laughs> Losing their cool um, and, and you know, insert word here. Yeah. But they were seen as, oh, well, you know, it's just they're passionate about, uh, yeah, about yeah. the, they're passionate about their job and what they do. Yeah. They're, they're passionate. If a woman showed emotion that was anger, frustration, sadness, uh, disappointment, anything like that, they're immediately oftentimes perceived as unstable, okay. emotional, yeah. Yeah. unprofessional, because we're not able to separate you know, our emotions from our, our logical brain is kind of the assumption that's yeah. made. And so I remember being a, a, a senior woman in, in the industry and feeling all the range of feelings every human does but having to always, always, always filter my feelings through a need yeah. to be very, very stoic, very professional, very calm and measured. And I had situations where I had men almost shouting, right? Um, or cursing or being angry. And I was not allowed to reciprocate because yeah. I knew the consequences for me would be much yeah. larger. 
And so the research talks a lot about that. And not just that it's happening, but that that filtering, that filtering that I had to do and so many women had to do it, masking, code switching, some people call it, right? And Mm -hmm. it's, it's not just women, people of color face this, and especially women of color face this the most, that doing that time and time again is extremely exhausting. Yeah. There are lots of psychological studies that talk about the burden and the stress that that that, that causes. These, um, you know, there's a lot of research around microaggressions, but also this code switching that we have to do. Of yeah, I may be very vocal when when I'm at home with my friends. I may cry. I may scream. I may, you know, whatever. But at work, when you have to shut that down, that's exhausting. You yeah. are turning off parts of you, and mm-hmm. you're essentially playing a role, and that's exhausting. And that is why the research tells us that when you look at rates of burnout, when you look at rates of stress, um, depression, we've seen it rise much, much more in in the past couple of years among women and people of color um, than, than any other groups. And it's not because they're not capable. It's not because we can't keep up. It's because we are facing so many other obstacles and daily little things and big things that drive unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to kind of switch things up a little bit and start talking about solutions. So Mm. kind of focusing a lot of our conversation on what you see as the solutions. Like I have some ideas myself, but from what you've read from the companies that you've worked with, from your own experiences as well, I'd love to know, like, do we have some steps that we can start to take? Because obviously there are huge challenges. You, You kind of talked about the the fact that as and I can relate much more to being a woman, you yeah. know, and kind of focusing on on that area specifically. And I faced those challenges and I probably didn't acknowledge or realize at the time that it was a specific challenge to my gender. I just thought I'm unhappy at work. I'm not really sure why that is. But upon reflection, when I look back, I think, actually, do you know what? There is something deeper going on here. And so I'd love to start the conversation around like, well, what can we what can we start mm. to do? And, you know, one of the thoughts just to kind of maybe jump the gun a little bit. But one of the thoughts I had was that women need to vote with their feet. So if they're not happy in a place that they are, there's so many organizations out there that can provide that you know fantastic culture the opportunities that they're investing in their people so any thoughts to kind of maybe on that to build on that or or completely different ideas in relation to how do we address how do we start to address this issue i'll start with that one because i completely agree and that's what i did yeah same right and it it sends a very powerful message mm. Now, last year, McKinsey came out with a big report called Women in the Workplace. They do every year. Yeah. And that report showed a pretty surprising, I mean, for some people surprising, for us, probably not so much, data and trend around uh, senior level women leaving the workplace in droves. They are leaving. Mm -hmm. And I work with a lot of companies and organizations that have challenges retaining women and people of color. Because some of them, not all of them, some of them can get good at attracting and recruiting, but then they lose them, yeah. right? They, they can't hold on to them because we are voting with our feet. And I highly encourage people to do that. Obviously, that is so much easier said than done. You're just yeah. telling everyone to quit their jobs or find a new job. That is not easy. So I want to preface that. Um, and the support that you want to have 
you know, to do that is big. So I definitely encourage anybody who's in that position and feeling, what can I do? I feel stuck. Talk to people like us who have who have done this, seek out motivation, seek out support um, in doing that, because it's it's much, much easier to do with a team than alone. So I'll say that from a, a personal level. And I think that one of the misconceptions that's out there a lot is that it's on us to fix it. And it's not. So I have a little bit of a pet peeve around <laughs> a lot of women's networking functions or events or associations that I participated in because so much of the programming tends to be, you know, these amazing speakers come in or these workshops. But if you think about it, a lot of the teaching and the learning they're doing is about how to change yourself to fit in with XYZ. Mm -hmm. So how to seem more confident, how to be more assertive, you know, all of these things when we are not necessarily the problem and we need to change that messaging that it's on us to fix this, that if we're unhappy, if we're not being taken seriously, if we're not being treated the same or fairly, it's on us to change that and demand more. Now, it's on us to hold our standards and it's on us to make sure that we're <laughs> we're where we want to be and being treated the way we, we want to be. But if we're not, it's not on us to change you know, the entire organization, what you can do is state, look, I'm noticing A, B, and C. Here's the data. It It's not right. So what are we going to do about this? Now, when your employer or whatever the organization is, does not respond in a way that values that feedback mm -hmm. and actions it, leave. <laughs> yeah. Leave because you're right. And so what we're seeing is, uh, and this is one of the business cases I make, to organizations about why you need to be investing in, in culture and inclusion and 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 all of that with and, and leadership training within your company because people are leaving and you are going to lose amazing talent. You're going to grow a reputation as a sort of toxic workplace. <laughs> and, and increasingly when women and people of color are looking for places to work, they are looking at what the makeup of the team is. So if you're losing women, if you're losing your people of color, you're going to have an even harder time recruiting. So we're seeing this impact companies. And so, yes, we are voting with our feet. We're, take, we're, we're taking steps to other organizations that are doing this work and paying attention yeah. to this. So absolutely, I agree with that. That's, yeah. I think, one can, can we dive into that a little bit more? Because mm -hmm. I know, you know, you've acknowledged the fact that it's, it's not that simple. You know, you can't just go out. There's finances to consider and, and, and things like that. And I know certainly Brian Akar, who connected us mm -hmm. in the first place, we have a whole episode on on why I left, basically. Yes. And um, he's talking about why people leave organizations. But, mm -hmm. you know, for me, when I so I left two, let's say I left two workplaces, one completely toxic, the other just not a great fit for me. But I mm -hmm. left. It might have taken a while to do that, maybe a few months. But I know people who are out there who are in those toxic situations, who are not progressing, who are not working to their strengths, but they're staying where they are. So I suppose I want to acknowledge them mm. and acknowledge that fact and maybe talk to them and say, well, how can how can we help you to get through this? Yeah, yeah. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and let me be very clear. I quit and I get emails all the time from people who hear me on a podcast or ex-colleagues being like, you are so brave. You are so courageous. Like, I wish I could do what you did. Yeah. I wish I could do what you did. Yeah. It took me three years. Yeah. 
three years. It was extremely difficult emotionally, psychologically, physically, right? It's not an easy process. And through that, I've thought a lot about, you know, I was able to do it even though it took three years, but I had incredible amount of support. What about all the people who don't have that support? And so one of um, my passion projects on the side is, is helping people navigate that. And so I've had lots of conversations with Brian about this because he's doing this great work, talking to people, not only about why they quit, but how they quit. And the advice I always give, I mentioned it before, don't do it alone. Make mm. sure that you have a tribe of people around you who can support you. A, motivating you that you can survive without this job, that you can feel successful without this job, that you can find another job. So there's this sort of motivation, psychological, emotional support around it, whether yeah. that is a therapist, a coach, your friends, whatever. Not everyone has a support from their family, for example, um, or their friends. So wherever you need to find that, find it and surround yourself with it. As I mentioned, reach out to people like you, like me, who have done it and can 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 give you that that push and that hug to go do yeah. it. Second, you know, there there are more practical things. I worked with a financial advisor to make sure that I had my finances together, knew how much I needed to save um, so I could project, okay, if you know it takes me this long to get my first client, how much do I need? That kind of thing. So that kind of practical advice there around finances, practical advice around if you're looking for another job work with someone, maybe, maybe get a career coach or get someone who can help you look at your CV and say, you know, you are not making the most of everything you've done. Let's, let's, yeah. you know, look practically at this, mm. get that support. And the other thing is it is so hard to step away and be strategic and thoughtful and grounded through a process when you are super stressed, when you yes. are in a toxic setting, when yeah. you are exhausted and exhausted is the number one word I am sure people can identify with yeah. if they're going through this. So the the other the other number one thing you need to do is that I mean I hate to use the term self-care because I think it's overuse and trite, but you've got <laughs> to take care of yourself and yeah. you've got to carve out space for yourself to, you know, some people meditate, some people do yoga, sure. But what yeah. I'm talking about here is Spend time with your desires. Spend time yeah. with the things that make you happy. Yeah. Because that happiness and connecting with some people, there's a, a famous guy who I think was like the chief happiness officer at, at Google for some time who termed this phrase joy dots. These little moments or these yeah. little things throughout your day that just yeah. make you a little happy. Maybe it's your first sip of a coffee. Maybe it's spending time with your kids, reading a book, whatever those little things are, make time for it. You don't need to spend every single moment of your free time thinking strategically about what you're going to do next. You need to also cultivate the space for your body and your system to be like, I got this. Yeah. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so to, I am to... not a therapist. I am not a coach, but that is what I have learned through yeah. having done this. But to get your energy back as well, and I know certainly that toxic environment that I mentioned, it really knocked my confidence a lot, probably way beyond what I thought. And it's only now in reflection, I can see, wow, that probably lasted about 10 years where mm -hmm. I just felt I'm not good enough or uh, that everything was my fault. When I can see objectively now, I did what I could to try and yeah. create a better situation for myself. So 
if there's people listening today, which I'm sure there are, who are finding themselves in that situation, blaming themselves, exhausted because the work is toxic and they have to mask and mm-hmm. whatever else is going on, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. It might take a while to get there, but think about what you need to do in order to make it a reality. So maybe you can't afford to talk to a financial person, but oftentimes they can help you to save money rather than thinking of it as an expense. Mm -hmm. So think about all the things that you need to do in order to make that a reality for you and see that light at the end of the tunnel. We're still early in 2024. There's still (laughs) time to do that. And, you know, if you're going through that, you're definitely you're definitely not alone. Um, (laughs) Melina, I'd love to come back and talk now because you mentioned a lot of the time these trainings that are offered to women. It kind of places the issue at the foot of women and there's a bigger role that organizations play in this. So how can we address those organizational issues? Yeah, that has become my my passion, you know, my work passion. That's what I do is is helping organizations address this. Now, I want to say a couple of things about what holds organizations back from addressing this, you know, what yeah. what's held them back. A, I think it's overwhelming, feels overwhelming. B, it seems like it's a big ship to shift course and we we don't have the time or the budget or the attention. Um, and also it feels very intimidating. I think that is probably the number one thing holding organizations back from addressing, you know, what we're talking about here, which is fundamentally equity and inclusion issues. It is a very uncomfortable topic for a lot of people in positions of leadership, especially white men. And it's not because they're bad people (laughs) that I I will never say they're not bad people. Mm. Um, But it's an area that has become supercharged politically, emotionally, all of these things. And so what I have focused on is looking at those obstacles to, you know, what's holding organizations back from actually doing something about this and, and, and shaped what I do around that. And so the first thing I think one of the things that you and I have been mentioning throughout this conversation is that these are unconscious decisions or actions or behaviors and habits um, that are happening. And so the first thing we have to do to, to, to change those is become aware of them, right? So the first step in XYZ is, is admitting you have a problem. Yes. <laughs> so we need to admit we have a problem. Um, and that the problem does not need to be a big, dramatic, uncomfortable thing. My my big motto that I use a lot is, is uh, little hinges swing big doors. Mm. Um, and so the first little hinge that we need to develop is, is awareness. And so for me, that means uh, not just, okay, have a workshop every month or training every month, but can we have conversations? Can we work in conversations about these things in, um, in a supportive uh, sort of growth oriented way. And so I've worked with organizations where we set up, okay, every month in the staff meeting, we're going to set aside a portion of the meeting to watch this five minute video on this uncomfortable questions, part of my, my series on what's a gender pronoun, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're all just going to sit here, we're going to watch this, and then we'll talk about what we learned or what surprised us or how we feel about it, right? And so it just needs to be part of the general conversation and we need to become aware of these things. Yeah. The more aware we are, the more you know we can actually do about it. And so yeah. working in learning. So learning is a really, really important part of this. So what are you as an organization doing to grow awareness? 
of these topics, of these trends, of this research, of this, you know, what's actually happening, putting names to it. As you mentioned, and what I experienced as well, a lot of times we're going through, we're experiencing these things. We don't know it's a thing. We don't know there's a term. We don't know it's a thing happening to other people. And there's a huge sense of relief um, when you realize it's not, oh, it's not me. Yeah. Um, So that's really important and having conversations. I find Um, that with with imposter syndrome, once people mm -hmm. realize that it's a thing and it has a name, they Mm -hmm. realize that they're not the only one who's experiencing that. Yeah. Um, I was going to build on what you were saying about the uncomfortable questions. There could be an awful mm. lot of fear around that fear of making a mistake. Mm. Like what if I call someone the wrong pronoun or like how, how do I correct it? Yes. Or maybe they're afraid of ever speaking to that person again or whatever it might be, yes. because I know like it's, I'm sure it's been around for a lot longer, but it's come much more to the fore in the last number of years, people, yeah kind of demanding what their identity is uh, and things like that and so there's all these questions that other people have that they're afraid to ask you know absolutely and so every single organization I work with I institute something called an uncomfortable question almost like box so basically giving employees the opportunity the option to submit questions or concerns fully anonymously Right. In a way that allows them to learn, but not feel intimidated and fearful. That project, and I also have a project called Uncomfortable Questions. It's a it's a weekly newsletter that goes out. It's on LinkedIn. It's also via email um, in my P20 newsletter um, that I collect these questions people submit online and then I respond to them. And so a lot of the questions that I've gotten, everything from, you know, I mentioned what's a gender pronoun. And Hispanic Heritage Month, I got a lot of questions around what's the correct term? Is it Latinx? Is it Hispanic? Like, what? I just don't know. I'm, I don't know what to do or say. Um, so little things like that, um, big things like how do I deal with the increasing political divisions that are happening this year? How do I prevent that from affecting, you know, my colleagues' relationships with each other and how we work together? So there's a range of topics. And I think it's we don't, if you think about your experience with work, if you think about leaders and work, there is very little space, if any, where leaders can go and ask questions that are a little bit touchy or sensitive or relate, especially related to DE and I, um, where they feel they can go ask a question and learn. Yeah. Without feeling like, am I going to get pushed back? Or without feeling, without feeling judged, that they without should fear know of cancel. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that is a concrete thing. And I always recommend it. Even if, you know, I'm not working with an organization, you're a leader, here's the suggestion. Or if you're HR, if you're not HR, you know, take these in. And also what it does, it's a really great data point for you as a, as a leader, um, or even if you do it within your team as a manager of a team, is it gives you a, a great sense of what's keeping your people up at night or what may be some issues on the team. If you're seeing multiple people, you know, pose questions about, how do I handle conflict or how do I handle angry emails, right? Okay, now you're starting to identify that there are some, you know, issues around this this theme and you don't need to have the answer. You know, you can't be expected as, as a leader to be an expert in conflict resolution, unconscious bias, et cetera, et cetera. But there's nothing preventing you from going and finding someone yeah. who can come in and talk about that. Mm. One of the things that I do that I think is is a really big part of addressing this, right? Like what can organizations do is something called a culture audit. Now, sometimes mm-hmm. organizations do engagement surveys, but I found those having 
you know, filled many out in my day. They're a little lacking. I don't think they get to the heart of a lot of issues. I think that they can be too long. They're a little bit dull and we don't really get anything out of participating. You know, we Mm -hmm. don't seem to, nothing seems to be action. So why even fill it out, right? Is the general sense. Um, Also, there's a a lack of trust. Even when an engagement survey that your boss sends you says it's anonymous, you don't really believe that. There's always a way, right? You don't believe it. You're worried that it'll come back. Yes, exactly something that was written and they'll realize that mm-hmm. it was you who wrote it no matter how much they yes. say well we can't break it down to individuals or it's not it's going to be aggregated yes. to a minimum of five people still exactly. if people see the language that you use or the issue that mm-hmm. you have there's often that perception that hey this isn't exactly. really anonymous and I can't I don't mm-hmm. feel safe saying yeah. what I really want to say exactly and so uh, another number one piece of advice to organizations invest in what I call a culture audit, right? That is looking across your organization that is customized to your organization, your specific challenges, your industry. You know, the way that I do it is I sit down with the leadership team or whoever's, you know, administering or or, or initiating the survey and say, what are your big challenges? What do you think the issues are? What do you think you do well? What are your big challenges as, as a company? You know, forget DE&I, what, what's holding you back? Maybe you're feeling like you're not productive enough. You're having retention issues. Let's look at the whole picture. Because a lot of times the the things that are hindering or obstacles to the productivity, the innovation, et cetera, is actually rooted in some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, Workloads, uh, inequities, feeling Mm -hmm. unvalued, all the things. So then you create a, a custom survey and so you know everyone hates the s word but there's a lot of science behind what can make a great survey and i've i get on average like 90 to 95 percent engagement rates with mine because they need to be short they need to be compelling and people need to be able to see the value that comes out of it yeah and then one-on-one conversations so a survey is great but what i do is i pair it with having anonymous um you know, psychologically safe, they call it conversations across your organization with people at all different levels um, about their experiences. And that is incredibly, incredibly insightful about what is and not what is and isn't going on at the company. And you're able to then come back and say, here's what your people need. Here's what they want to see. Here's what motivates them. And here are the concrete things you can do, small and large again, little hinges swing big doors to address this. And even just the step, what I've noticed with initiating a culture survey, contracting someone to come in and do this, the impact it has on employees, they go, wow, they're really taking this seriously. And so you get points, you gain points and credibility and trust with your people in the very simple step of just doing it. Obviously you want to action it, you want to do things with it, but it's a really powerful step to take to send your people the message that you're paying attention and you care and you want to make it better. Yeah. And I think therein lies the key is don't ask questions on things that you can't take action on. So Mm. make sure to link back whatever the results from the survey, from the audit, whatever comes back from that, link it back and say, these are the actions that we're taking as a result of what you said what you told us you wanted to do which makes it easier than the next time to implement that same kind of thing people will be like oh do you know what they did make those changes that we talked about or 
or give a reason why you can't make that specific change. I think that, you know, yeah. something that comes up all the time with people is pay, isn't it? Like, oh, I need to be mm-hmm. paid more. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's have let's address the elephant in the room. Here's yeah. here's what we're doing to address that issue. Here, yeah. here are the, the steps that we're going to take, but here's what we're not doing in relation yeah. to that as well. You know, it's interesting about pay and this, I'm glad you mentioned that and it, it links to what we're talking about because I think that is a big assumption that a lot of leaders make is that, um, the unhappiness among employees, especially maybe juniors, is really related to pay. And well, budget-wise, there's nothing we can do about that. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting as the data tells us, like, of course, people need to feel like they're being compensated fairly. That's a given. Yeah. But what's actually even more important is people feel that they're growing. Now, yeah. a lot of times, if if the only way a company is sort of showing an employee that they're valued is through their compensation, then they're going to want more compensation. But when you can reward employees or address this need for employees to feel like they're growing through other means, issues around salary and dissatisfaction become much less of a problem. Um, And what I mean by that is the number of employees I've talked to feel like, okay, I know I'm junior. I would like to be making more money. I understand that that might take some time, but how can I be developing my professional skills? How can I feel like this company is helping me grow if it's not in salary immediately, that at least I'm getting more skills. I'm getting more experience. I get to maybe do a project or two here with another team. And so how are you thinking about the learning and development, the management training, right, that you're giving to people? Concrete example, someone wants to rise up and go from, you know, uh, an individual contributor to a manager. They want to rise up to the manager level. Let's say in the budget or the, the structure of the organization, there's just not a space or a budget for that for that person, but you want to support them. You want to say, hey, we, we care about you. We value you. We, we do want to see you grow. We just can't do it on the timeline um, that, that you want. But hey, let's do this. Let's get you access to some management training. Let's get you totally ready and equipped. Let's, let's build up that skill set in you, cultivate that. And so when a position does open up, you are ready to go. We want to invest in your success. And that's not a $10,000 investment, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's minimal. And so it's little things like that. And that's really what drove the development of, of my platform, which is the, the P20 platform, which is around providing those learning and development resources in a really accessible, approachable way so that employees feel like, oh, I'm learning, I'm growing, and mm-hmm. you can do it in, in, in a comfortable environment. Brilliant. I love that. Anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap things up? I would just really want to reemphasize the point that, you know, don't shy away from this work. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be unapproachable. Um, My big mission is making, you know, addressing these culture and DEI issues and obstacles, making it fun, making it approachable, making it value add and we need to change the sort of stigma around it. This is essentially, as your podcast is titled, about making people happier at work. Yeah. It's not necessarily about shaming people or correcting wrongs or telling people they're bad or pointing out all of our flaws. That's all true. We all have flaws. We're all not great at everything, right? That's a given. <laughs> but how can we look at this work as something that contributes to everyone's happiness? Yeah. And I think if we can shift our mindset around that as leaders in organizations, we're going to be able to do a lot more work because we're not approaching it with this 
you know, shut down, shut off. Oh gosh, what, what am I going to be told next? What am I going to be you know, told I'm bad at or wrong about? And so I say that, especially, especially to, to the men who are, who are listening and may feel like I just, I have so much on my plate. I cannot add something that's going to make me feel terrible or like I'm to blame, right? All of us are in this together. We all have bias. We all have a lot of the same unconscious assumptions. So this is not a, we need to get a certain demographic group to be better. This is, we all need to work together on yeah. finding ways to be better and do right. better. I love that. And the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what does being happier at work mean to you? Being happier at work means feeling valued, feeling purpose, feeling included. And for me personally, it feels like I'm growing. I think the the moment that I become unhappy or unsatisfied with work is when I feel like I'm not growing. Yeah. That's not just revenue wise. You know, am I learning? Am I expanding? Am I trying new things? Am I adventuring? So for me and statistically for a lot of people, it's do I feel like I'm growing? Yeah. Brilliant. I love that. And Melina, if people want to connect with you, if they want to find out more about what you do and the P20 platform, what's the best way they can do that? They can go to my website, melinacordero.com. Very simple. And you can link to all of my business services that I offer. Um, but the other great thing is sign up for my newsletter, which is which is on that website, the P20 newsletter, which includes all the uncomfortable questions, uh, weekly insights and tips for leaders, several of which, you know, we've talked about today about how we can actually make things better. So it's research for and insights, both for individuals about what we can be doing day to day, but also for, for organizations and, and leaders and what you can do um, at your companies. And uh, definitely very prolific on LinkedIn. So I post a lot, share a lot of research and data there. So uh, you can definitely keep up with me, add me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to have new friends. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. Really, really insightful stuff. And I think some great practical things that people can start implementing straight away. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody is looking for support in driving some of those tangible cultural changes at their organization, you know who to call. I've got lots of ideas. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in today. And I really hope today's episode resonated with you. If you did enjoy today's episode, I'd love for you to take a couple of minutes or even a couple of seconds to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. It really does mean the world to me. As always, if you want to connect with me, you'll find all of my links on the website happieratwork.ie.